This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. It's a real pleasure to have an opportunity to share space with this sangha that I admire greatly over the years. And uh, I was very much looking forward to visiting the, my, the center again and, uh, and, and speaking your beautiful hall. And uh, so maybe uh, it will be another time. And like David said, I, I, have, I have to say I was falling asleep at 7.45 three hours ago. So I took the drastic measure of taking a nap after dinner uh, to ensure that I can be awake because last night I was completely asleep by 9.45. So um, if you saw my beginning to get incoherent, that, that I'm going to blame it on that. Uh, so they, thank you for, 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 um, for joining me this evening. And um, I, I spoke with David, uh, a dear friend from the Gen X community, and um, he gave me this list of a big wish list of what he would like me to talk about. And then I discovered the amount of time I've got. So I would do, do my best. Um, what he told me is he, well, I think it's uh, really a good request that since um, you haven't met me, uh, you probably want to know who, who is it who is speaking. And um, I also heard that it would be, um, that would be great interest to hear something about um, how it was to train with Master Shen Yan and perhaps how he trains students. And so I hope in what I'm going to talk about, it will, um, it will address that. And um, so depending on how time goes, I have a giant clock in front of me so I don't go over time. Um, I, I, sh I hope to be able to share a little bit of what's, what, what's alive for me, what's of great interest to me um, in the recent days. And I, one thing that, that might be helpful to, to, uh, to talk about is that I often find there are a great deal of assumption made about me because of my uh, ancestry. Um, for example, people assume that I grew up Buddhist, which, which is not very close to the truth at all. I grew up in a totally non-religious family. My parents are quite confused still why they had a Buddhist daughter and an evangelical Christian brother and um, so uh, a son and um, and I was born and grew up in Brit in a British colony Hong Kong and uh, and because of that I received a British education and uh, rather very often a non non-Chinese upbringing because of my environment and because of the fact that my parents had to move to Hong Kong and start their life anew um, when, they, when they had to flee communist China. So, um, and I ended up in the United States when I went to California to do my graduate study 
in sociology. It, is in, it was in California where I encountered Master Shenyan's teaching through my current husband. That's another assumption often made. Um, he, was, he's, he was a genetics graduate student, a blue-eyed white guy from Kansas. So most people just assume that I made him Buddhist. But it was the other way around. He was already he already practiced Zen for a number of years, and at that time he was studying with a student of Master Shenyan in California, Southern California, and he was actually the person who taught me how to meditate. And um, so that was another common assumption. Usually, people just like look super surprised when they heard that. And um, at that time, that's before Google and all that stuff. So I actually had to go to a monastery in the LA area to borrow written by Master Shen Yan to, um, and, and um, I felt a very strong affinity with him after I read his books. Uh, it, I, in particular, I remember the, one of the very first book I read about, read by him. He wrote about um, what Buddhism is about, which was very different from the folk understanding for people on, uh, among whom I grew up with, and really resonated with me. Uh, it, it felt very much like what I was looking for, and really made a lot of sense to me. And so what happened was uh, a few months later, he made a trip to Los Angeles, a rare occasion. And I took refuge with him the very first time I, I saw him in person after he gave a public lecture. And that was before I had a chance to practice with him in a retreat. And it was very difficult to get into a retreat with him that he held in his center in Queens, New York. So almost a year later, I finally had a chance to travel from Southern California to Queens to attend the first retreat, which was a seven-day intensive retreat in Queens. And um, it was an, it was, um, I, I felt like when I first met him in the interview in that retreat, I remember that, um, I just felt like I found, I found uh, my teacher and I couldn't stop crying. I didn't quite know why, um, but I felt that I finally found him. And so it started the years of my life to, uh, in the final years of my graduate study where I worked on my research, but also devoted a great deal of time and energy into my practice prioritizing my practice. So when it was time for me to go on a job market, being able to practice, um, preferably being to be close to Master Genium was important. And that's how I ended up in New Jersey. And uh, I took my an, an academic position here. Because I was living in New Jersey, I traveled to the center every weekend when I was when I was uh, here on my own. Because at that time, my then fiance was still finishing his graduate study, and 
what happened was uh, a series of interesting events over the um, for first 10 years uh, when I was living in New Jersey. Uh, I became his interpreter because his, uh, his interpreter at that time had to uh, take a leave and I was asked to be trained to be his interpreter. And um, I tried because I didn't really understand Mandarin, which was what Master Zhenyin was speaking in. Uh, I could only understand his Dharma talks in, tra in translation in English. And um, I became his interpreter uh, and, uh, in his Dharma talks and retreats. And I traveled with him internationally when he was attending religious leaders meetings. And looking back, part of uh, what drove me was uh, when I was staying at the center over those weekends, inevitably every morning we would share breakfast. Uh, we actually share all the meals. Every time when Master Xing returned from Taiwan, he split his time between Taiwan and New York. He would ask how we could bring Chan practice to into American society more in a more integrated way. And uh, he would, uh, the Sangha was struggling that by that time it was mostly um, supported and attended by, I think mostly Taiwanese immigrants. And so um, the, the community was struggling with that a little bit. And in my mind, I, I told myself I would, um, I would do everything I could to help him. And so when they wanted me to be his interpreter, that's, that's what I thought I could, I could do, the small part I could do. And uh, around the same time, someone approached Master Shenyan to publish or work on an autobiography for him, which, is, which was eventually published uh, in the title of Footprint in the Snow. Some of you might have read it. And we didn't know, but it turned out to be a 10-year project. And uh, it was one of the greatest blessings of my life to be the one uh, person who helped work on that project. And so I, with working on that project, um, one, one thing it, it involved me having to conduct a lot of interviews with Master Shenyan. And what, what Master Shenyan said was that, well, I don't have any time to do this. The only time I could do interviews for this book was during retreats. So from then on, every during every um, intensive retreat I attended with Master Shenyan, I uh, served as his interpreter during the retreat talks. And also I would spend an hour of each day um, conducting interview with him for his, uh, for his book. And um, I also did help with some organizational things, such as helping to coordinate the teacher's training. Uh, I was also drafted, asked to, to participate in a teacher training program, uh, largely because he got tired of people just sitting in his Dhamma talks and, and then not do anything with what he talked about. So he wanted us to um, train to be possibly become lecturer 
in the Dharma. And as a way, uh, and really he's his trick to get us to um, study the Dharma more diligently. And um, so that that's something I, I did and that resulted in my starting to teach uh, as a Dharma lecturer in 2002. And of course that compelled me to take my Dharma study more seriously so that I could talk about a Dharma uh, in, in a way that, that would be helpful for others. And looking back, I saw that going through that training and um, being a Dharma lecturer was a very important part of my of my training in the Dharma. I would uh, it compelled me to practice more diligently than I would otherwise. Um, I was also drafted to um, help with running the retreat center in two thousand four. Um, at that time, the organization wanted to engage in some restructuring. So Dharma Drum Retreat Center was trying to incorporate as a separate organization. And I was asked to be one of its founding board members and try to figure out how to um, set up, set things up there. And uh, it was uh, quite, quite a learning experience to learn to navigate the delicate situation of teasing out that part of the organization from the existing community without damaging relationships. Um, it was a, a real project and um, a great gift that Master Jinyang gave to me uh, in, in, my, in my training uh, over the, the years. I think I, um, it, for, for, over, for over 15 years, um, I, I was doing that work. And I also trained with Master Shinyan's two most senior lay Dharma heirs from the UK, John, uh, Dr. John Crook and Simon Child, who, who, uh, from whom I received my Dharma transmission. And um, this is very interesting. Um, what happened was Master Shinyan tasked them and his Dharma heirs but uh, in particular, John, John Crook, uh, Master Shinyan tasked them with the job of adapting Chan practice to the West. Because uh, when John Crook, the first Dharma heir, received his transmission, he asked Master Shinyan, what, what should I do? And uh, Master Shinyan told him, well, I'm not, I'm not a Westerner. You, you go figure it out. And that's um, that I, I kept that in mind because Master Xinyan entrusted him to find his way and um, to as a way to fulfill his great vow of sharing this great gift of Buddha Dharma to as many people as possible. And um, my training would not be complete without mentioning what I have learned from John Crook and Simon Child. Some, I don't know, uh, you, many of you may not have heard of him. He's a good friend of 
David Loy and Stephen Bachelor in the UK, and um, he had skillfully incorporated Western psychology and encounter group techniques he picked up while he was a visiting professor at Stanford. And, and the way he did it helped practitioner develop this mind of inquiry, which is actually quite tricky to, to do. And I would argue that he has um, done a brilliant job to, to accomplish them. Um, for the practitioners that I trained with, that I uh, later uh, teach, they learn to penetrate the mind using a question. Uh, he designed this retreat called Western Zen Retreat, which uses a question and um, similar to the practice of Huato. Some of you might have heard of that in uh, Chinese Chan, but in a different uh, way from how it was done in traditional uh, Chan practice. But it's very, very effective. And from my experience over the years, practitioners who have attended the Western Zen retreat, who have trained with this, uh, uh, with this kind of method, are uh, much better at picking up the practice of cultivating clear awareness, uh, such as even in a silent illumination retreat, without falling into the trap of quietism. And I have benefited uh, greatly from from training with them. And so as a result, I largely teach along this line and it has yielded very, uh, much benefits. And I believe it is an approach that suits the Western educated mind. So I think for many of us, uh, whether we are we call Westerners or not, uh, nowadays, even in uh, Asia, many, all my friends are uh, at Western educated and find that they could connect with this kind of uh, approach more readily than the much more traditional uh, Chinese method. And um, I think, I don't know how many, how, how much you know about Master Shen Yan, um, in the United States, he's mostly known as a Chan master. Um, but he's also a very accomplished Buddhist scholar. Um, he, he pursues scholarship in Buddhism, not with an eye to become a knowledgeable um, scholar uh, person, but as a way to practice and also to really revive Chinese Buddhism uh, for the benefits of the world, because he deeply believed that the way Buddhism had developed in China um, had resulted in a form of practice and teaching that makes it very um, portable from culture to culture. And so what he did was he engaged in a six year solitary retreat in which he engaged in the intensive practice, but also read through all the Tripitaka, 
all of it. So he act, he did not he was not well versed only in Chan uh, in in Chan uh, uh, part of Buddhism, but um, all of Agamas or the early uh, the, uh, uh, early Buddhist teaching, but also other traditions, uh, Tian Tai, Hua uh, Yan, all of it. And uh, he also went to graduate study in Japan, so he also became familiar with Japanese Buddhism and various form of uh, Japanese Buddhist uh, practice, which brought, brought, uh, brought him to be a very um, eclectic teacher. So in terms of techniques, he picked up many different forms of practice and incorporated them wherever he find they are useful. Um, so for example, when he first started teaching meditation in New York, that was when he first started uh, teaching, he asked what, what the people like to do. And he heard, oh yeah, people really like to um, counter breath. So that's what he taught. And of course he was familiar with that uh, from his study of Tantai. Uh, when there was not a traditional method in meditation in, in Chan. Uh, for a Chan monastery, uh, up to that point in, uh, in most of the early 20th century, of course before, uh, the method used to calm the minds actually uh, reciting the Buddha's name and what we will associate with the Pure Land method. So, um, I thought I will give you a little bit of a sense of uh, the other side of Master Shenyan that may not be well known. But reason uh, is that um, his scholarly uh, his scholarly work led him to view um, Chan uh, in a way that that may be quite different from others. Uh, and I remember from the very first retreat I attended with him, he kept talking about he kept saying this. Uh, thing about how Zen or Chan is Buddha Dharma, which was very, which I didn't quite understand why he kept saying it. And later on, I heard that some people thought that Zen or Chan is something, is its own thing. And um, as I study his scholarly work more, he um, really wanted to clarify that. Chan is not just a sect in Buddhism. Chan practice is a culmination of centuries of Buddhist practice and study in China that was later also um, uh, spread to Japan, Korea, and um, other parts of Asia. And uh, that, uh, of course, uh, that, that was Buddhism inherited from India. And so it was all of Buddha Dharma. And so when we practice Chan, we are practicing the uh, Buddha's uh, teaching. And he focused on um, the practice of Huato and silent illumination. And with silent illumination being particularly portable because um, intensive Huato retreat can be done where really mainly in the intensive retreat setting where um, practitioners are well supported 
whereas uh, silent illumination is a practice that can be done anywhere, whatever you do. And um, so that's that part of it. And um, I want to um, talk a little bit about, it sounds like I've just been talking about my story, but I want to um, talk about Master Shen Yin's approach in teaching and training his student. Um, you can, if, you, if you're listening, you're like, I, I don't, I, I, where's the training program? I don't see Rebecca went through any real training program there. Um, there was no set program. And um, the way he, uh, he uh, trained his students, my, my experience is unique. No one else did the exact list of things I did, but the training I went through is actually not atypical among Master Shenyan students, which is um, very much an emphasis on Bodhisattva path where um, we prioritize engaging in the practice that bring benefits to others. And um, so um, this, that's the practice of sitting meditation, mainly to stabilize the mind so that we can cultivate insights, but not to engage in meditation for um, deep meditative experiences. And um, so when I say emphasizing um, this Bodhisattva path, uh, very often is done by engaging in various kind of what you will call work practice. As you can see, if you remember the, the different things that I was asked to do, um, I was not asked to do more longer retreats and uh, very often in retreats um, I was I had assignments during retreats and um, for almost every retreat I would have some practitioners in the retreats who came up to me and almost feeling sorry for me that like Rebecca I feel so sorry for you you didn't get to like sit as much as we do because you have to talk as the translator and you seem to have to leave the Chan Hall because you have to, I don't know what you have to go do, which is when I went to do the interview. And um, actually, uh, I, because of what I had to do, I had, I had to focus on my practice even more than if I was sitting on my cushion. So for example, because I had to translate for Master Shenyin, um, I remember when I was doing sitting meditation, I really could not goof around in my sitting meditation. I had to, uh, I told myself, I better really practice well so that my mind can be clear so that I could understand Master Shenyin's lecture um, so that I could translate all of them to uh, those in attendance because otherwise they would miss out on what he was teaching. And it was not uncommon for him to talk 15, 20 minutes at a time um, for, for, for before I get to translate for, for him. So because of that, um, 
I I was motivated to um, to be more concentrated to uh, stabilize my mind, get into the uh, retreat r- right away, and um, so uh, of course uh, to be his translator, I also need to study and learn the the Dhamma terms and the content itself and besides learning Mandarin and uh, because he spoke with a very um, heavy accent I um, learned to listen to every word very very closely so it was uh, uh, I learned to uh, develop a listening skill so um, this is an example of uh, what I was talking about by um, practicing the Bodhisattva path, which uh, we engage in some work with some people with things feels like a chore or work, but because the goal or the motivation uh, was to do this to help to help others to be able to practice, then it actually uh, became a vehicle to deepen our own practice. And um, similar experience uh, can be uh, found in my um, work of uh, interviewing for his books. And um, for one thing, I had to let go of the attachment that I'm here for a retreat and I should be sitting in meditation. Um, during those interviews, that's when that's how I practice. I practice listening to the interview and uh, typing them all down in front of a computer. Many people would not think of that as a right thing that one should be doing in a Chan retreat. Uh, but that's very much part of the this. So I learned not to be attached to the form of practice. Of course, um, being able to listen to Master Shenyan talk about his um, life story it was incredibly invaluable. I learned so much from him, from his example, how he um, responded and lived his life. For example, um, when he had to flee to Taiwan in 1949, when the uh, um, Chinese Communist Party took over China because of the fear that the communists would force monastics to this rope. So he uh, fled, but he, you know, the only way for him to flee was to join the nationalist military. So he ended up as a military. Uh, so he had to uh, leave monastic life for, for 10 years. Um, so for other people, they might feel very discouraged, but he made the best of it and uh, took, make, took advantage of the vacation time to visit uh, with old masters who also fled to Taiwan and um, also and, and, and focus on finding ways for himself to resume um, monastic life. And, and, and it was the determination and great vow that deepened his resolve and commitment. And so um, I learned from, from these story and I draw, I draw on them all the time. Uh, as I encounter um, challenges um, as a Dharma teacher. And uh, also as I, uh, for example, during the years when I had to set things up and as, uh, establish a retreat center for uh, Dharma drum and also 
currently as I'm um, establishing my own Sangha after I receive my Dharma transmission from Simon Child. Um, so time really flies when you talk and um, I, re um, I, I really would like to give some time for, um, for a question. Um, I guess I would uh, share something quickly that um, it's been really been on my mind. Um, when I went to, uh, I, recently I, I, I've been practicing with this um, sutra that was brought to my attention by my dear friend, Brother Fapai, a senior disciple of Thich Han. This is the sutra on the eight realizations of the great beings. I started integrating them into my, integrated it into my uh, morning service during my solitary retreat in uh, Hong Kong. And um, if you have not encountered this sutra, I encourage you to read it. It's a very short sutra. Uh, it pretty much sums up what we should remember all the time as a practitioner. And um, so uh, it's talked about eight realization, but the one I want to um, bring to your attention, because when I read it, I was like, wow, like the, like the, the Buddha and, the, and these great practitioners were talking about it um, centuries ago. Um, this is the second oldest sutra brought into China. So it's the second sutra that was translated uh, into Chinese for Chinese Buddhists. And I want to read the text of this realization. The sixth realization is the awareness that poverty creates hatred and anger, which creates a vicious cycle of negative thoughts and activity. When practicing generosity, bodhisattvas consider everyone, friends and enemies alike as equal. They do not condemn anyone's past wrongdoing, nor do they hate those who are presently causing harm. When I read this, I said, this is so useful for us in dealing with the current um, political situation in our country. Here, it's like this realization is the awareness, awareness, remembering that poverty creates hatred and anger. Remembering that um, here poverty, um, of course, is not just referring to material poverty. Um, it can be poverty or um, in uh, rights and uh, status, power. So really, he's, uh, this is talking about um, being aware and remembering that being marginalized and treated unfairly will breed anger and hatred. And we should remember it all the time so that we will not turn a blind eye to social structure that breeds or allow unfair treatment of some part of, our, of the population. But I believe that's not what's been happening. We allow that. We allow inequality to grow, injustices to fester, um, 
and pretend that they we can get away with it. And so remembering it, um, being aware of it um, will, will really is um, to remind us not to, not to tolerate it, not to tolerate extreme inequality and injustice and, and foolishly believe that it's not going to become a problem. And here is talking about um, the practice of generosity. And um, I've, I was so moved when I read about this. Um, it's not just about generosity at the personal level, but also remind us of how we really need to reflect on um, the destructiveness of the politics of meanness that we have been practicing in our society and really look deeply into how we can change the way we deal with politics um, so we don't um, perpetuate this idea there are some people uh, in our society that don't deserve a um, uh, don't deserve a, a, a life with basic uh, human dignity but uh, the last the last sentence I think is quite very very important um, that we do not condemn anyone's past wrongdoing Unfortunately, that is our habit, whether it's the discussion of racial um, uh, injustice or other kind of inequality or climate change. Um, we are ready to condemn those who have done wrong in the past and making it very difficult to um, to have a conversation, to find solution together. And in the Buddha's time and his, uh, his disciples, they already discovered this and left it in writing for us to, um, to, to guide us not to uh, condemn others' past wrongdoing. And in fact, if we practice and look into our own past, we know we have made a lot of mistakes out of um, ignorance, out of um, foolishness, a lack of awareness. And so um, we can remember that, that that same applies to others. And uh, nor do it, they hate those who are presently causing harm. Again, it is an important reminder there are those who are causing harm. We don't condone that. We need to hold them accountable, but it's not out of hatred. It's out of compassion to stop them from creating more unwholesome karma for themselves, to stop them from hurting more people. But it's not because we hate them. And of course, generating hatred in our heart towards them uh, only hurt ourselves and it's not going to help matter to, um, to progress. So this reminds me of the of two lines that um, Master Shenyan articulated that I, I use all the time. It's that with wisdom, there's no vexation. With compassion, there's no enemy. 
So when we practice this way, the most difficult problem can be sorted out and resolved in our lives. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.